0: And welcome to the Making Theatre podcast. My name is Bruno Poet. And my name is James Farncombe, and we are freelance lighting
1: designers. This time, we're talking to critic, journalist, and children's author, Lynn Gardner. Lynn has written about theatre and performance for The Guardian and The Independent and was a founder member of City Limits, the largest publishing co-op in Europe. She's currently Associate Editor of The Stage Newspaper, where she continues to write her theatre blog. We have always admired her work, especially because she takes a particular interest in fringe and more alternative theatre and pays a lot of attention to what's happening in regional theatre, where both our careers began. She is an incredible champion of theatre, so we're really excited and a little nervous to talk to her from her home in Richmond. Unfortunately, the internet connection was not the best, so the sound quality is not as good as usual, but please bear with it, Lynn is a fascinating guest. and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Welcome to our podcast. Uh, hello. We'd like to talk to you today about a number of things, including the, the current situation facing the industry. But although we are on an extended hiatus right now, we'd rather kick off on a more positive note and talk about making theatre, since that's what the podcast is about. And we'd like to begin by asking a few questions about you and your background, if that's OK with you. Yes, of course. So what was your first encounter with theatre?
2: Oh, actually, that's quite interesting. The first encounter that I can recall was going to see a production of The Wind in the Willows. Um, and I don't know whether this is true, but I think it might have been at the Coliseum. Ah. But the thing I remember most about it is the fact that towards the end, when the weasels are fighting the rest of the cast, uh, you know, Frog and Badger at Toad Hall, one of the members of the cast fell off the stage and the performance had to be abandoned. And I remember being incredibly upset by this, not, I'm afraid, because I was concerned for the health and safety of the actor who had fallen off the stage, but about the idea that actually it couldn't just be begun again in the way that a film could be.
0: So, did you grow up as a as a regular theatre goer? Did you did you go a lot?
2: Oh yeah, I was really lucky to do that. My mum was really keen on going to the theatre, and my parents, when they were courting, a lovely old fashioned word, <laughs> yeah, going to the theatre was something that they did a great deal, and if- something that uh, I think was valued in our house in the same way that books were valued and my parents uh, certainly weren't affluent. We were the kind of family who went down the uh, back of the sofa you know to find enough money for my dad to get to work on a Monday morning. Excellent sofa we always did. <laughs> but uh, what I would also say was that it was something that they felt prepared to spend money on and of the things that I think I've always thought really has played directly into my career was the fact that um, my mum really liked everything. So she loved large scale musicals, mm. but would just as happily um, go and see a show about R.D. Lang done by Actors Touring Company. So, you know, my childhood was spent watching musicals one week, an Agatha Christie play the next, and then a Chekhov or an Ibsen play the week after that. And for that, I will be eternally grateful. And really, I think, I always think I'm a bit like the kid with their nose pressed against the sweet shop window. I kind of look at it with big eyes and go, I want it all. I think that, you know, one of the problems with theatre is that somehow it kind of Start splitting into tribes, and that um, it's cool to like post dramatic theatre, but it's not cool to like tap dancing. And, and I just don't really buy that.
0: Yeah, do you know one of the great privileges James and I have being lighting designers is our work does tend to um, jump across all the genres. You know, we might be doing an opera one month and then a play at the National and then a musical or um, some esoteric piece of contemporary new writing in Paris another time, and I think I, I certainly share I think a similar joy of all the kind of variety of different types of theatre we can get involved in.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, and and I think that that's a good thing for theatre. I think you know the idea that 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 theatre should be narrowed in any way, or that there are only certain kinds of theatre that in a way are legitimate. I think is really, really damaging to Mm. theatre. If you narrow and say only certain things are acceptable, then what you end up with is uh, something that has less appeal to a wider audience.
1: Was there a defining production that sowed the seed of a lifelong passion, or was it um, just something that was always there?
2: I think it was something that was always there. And I would say that there is another thing which, funnily enough, I used in a children's novel that I wrote. I wrote a series set in a London stage school. Uh, And uh, this is a story that I used. I was at a convent school in Ballam when I was, I don't know, four, five or six. And I was incredibly shy to the point that I really, really, you know, would not speak in class the year was was putting on a play and it was a play about a king and queen who were infertile and desperately wanted a child and there was a fairy who came along and solved the problem for them you know this was the Mm. day before ivf um (laughs) and i sat desperately wanting to play the fairy and all the little girls in the class were asked to come forward and try and I wasn't selected and in the end I put my hand up and said I want to do this and of course you know this is an absolutely first-class showbiz story I got the role (laughs) (laughs) so I would say that for me from a really really early age the idea of both doing And seeing theatre were intimately connected in a way that I think that it is for lots of people who, in Mm. one way or another, then go into the profession. And I I was really, really lucky that as a result of that, I think my parents realised that it might be good for me to do what in those days was called called like speech and drama and mm. remember that in fact they paid for me to have lessons with a local drama teacher and my dad to this very day has still got the receipts for it <laughs> how much that it was valued and and also actually that it was quite a stretch for them
1: did
0: you go on after school to 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 act did you ever tread the boards or go or work backstage or direct
2: no I didn't I didn't do either but actually I think I definitely would have done one or the other or both if I could have done I applied for drama school I didn't get in but a couple of places that I went they I think it was Webber Douglas and it was Lambda and both of them said to me oh kind of come back next year and try again. We think you're too young. And I was, I I was, you know, when I think back now, I was an incredibly sheltered, young 17-year-old. And my parents were really keen I went to university and they sort of said to me, oh, if you go to university, you know, uh, you might be able to go to drama school afterwards. And what happened was that I went to university and I realised that I was absolutely terrible actor. I really really loved directing and that that, you know I I sort of thought oh maybe you know maybe I would be able to do this but actually I didn't know how you could be a theatre director you know though we were a theatre-going family we certainly didn't have any kind of connections with the industry in any way uh i had no idea how you might go about being a theater director even though i you know i had directed lots and lots of work when i was at university and Mm. one of the things that was probably again looking back on that was that i did lots and lots of things and productions that um Uh, took place in junior common rooms or in stairwells. Um, I didn't do a lot of stuff uh, uh, on uh, main stages. You know, I did a a production of Jeunesse, The Maids, with um, an all-male cast. Horror, to think about that now. But anyway... (laughs) Uh, in which i covered the entire uh, junior common room with tin foil all the walls and lit the whole thing with tea lights that sounds
0: great we're going to steal that idea <laughs> love it
2: <laughs> and i did lots of really experimental i mean i did one on one productions kind of in the, in the cupboard under the stairs and things like that so uh, but i i had no idea how you might do that my experience of what happened is that um Uh, of of sort of not feeling that I knew there was a way into the profession I think that in some ways mirrors a situation for many many people now and Mm. at the time you know because I'm a you know, I'm I'm older, a bit older than Deborah Warner and people like Katie Mitchell who then came along and who were doing it. And in fact the only female theatre director that I really knew at that time was Buzz Goodbody, who of course had been working for the RSC in the nineteen seventies. And I knew about her work and I thought it sounded really, really interesting. But you know, she had killed herself, and I guess even then, I'm quite a sensible person. When that doesn't seem like a great role model.
1: So, your your experience as a director was purely during your time at university. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And, and so, what were you studying at university? I
2: did English and drama at Kent University.
1: Yeah. Okay, and so how did you start writing about theatre? Well,
2: I already was writing at university. I had done quite a lot of journalism. When I came to London, I did a number of not very interesting jobs. But it was round about the time when uh, City Limits magazine was set up, which was a breakaway from Time Out, staff or Time Out had always been paid on parity. So the editor was paid exactly the same as other people in the office. And Tony Elliott, who had founded Time Out, wanted to change that. So the entire staff initially went on strike. And when it became clear that um, the, the strike could not be resolved, they decamped en masse and set up their own magazine, which was called City Limits. I knew some people who were working there, and I went to city limits, and initially I sold advertising, without which I was truly terrible.
0: Was that picking up the phone and cold calling people?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Uh, which is just not in my nature. You know, I've always thought as an interviewer, I'm not particularly good, because My mum always told me not to ask personal questions about people to people, you know, so I was rubbish at that. But, you know, one of the great things about being in what was effectively a cooperative was that there was an opportunity to do other things. So um, one day I plucked up my courage and went and asked the theatre department whether I might be able to write some theatre reviews.
1: And it went from there, that's where it took off from.
2: Yeah, 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 it absolutely went from there. I I mean, you know, I think there probably are people, I mean, I've always think that Michael Billington probably was a very good example, who I am, you know, sort of get the impression, you know, I may be completely wrong, but... um, Uh, you know, that he sort of very early on in his teens decided he wanted to be a theatre critic. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I had no idea such a job existed. I really didn't. One of the reasons why I think, you know, things like theatre craft, you know, that go on every year, I think is such a great idea because I think there are lots of people probably like me who uh, were really interested in theatre, but actually, um, you know, thought that the only thing that you could do was act. And then I got university mm. and realised I could direct. But actually, you know, I, I loved being a stage manager. I just wasn't really sure about those jobs or how you got into them. And I think, you know, a theatre critic falls into that category as well. It's, you know, it's quite a strange thing to find yourself doing
0: absolutely i think you could probably say the same about lighting designers certainly i was involved in school productions as a child but i didn't really understand that a lighting designer could be a job i could do in the future and it's something i kind of evolved into through university really and you're right i think we do need to do more work with organizations like theatrecraft to um explain the roles to new generations of people because I think it does feel a bit like a closed shop from the outside world and we really need to work to open it up
2: yeah no, I entirely agree I, I think it's very true and I think there is something so important about that thing of thinking that we can do and also doing I always remember I, oh this was years ago when Brian McMaster was doing his um investigation into excellence Um uh, mm. For the Arts Council. And I remember going to a meeting to which I was invited to, you know, talk about the idea of excellence in the theatre, something, of course, I am very dubious about. Not that I don't think that lots of theatre is excellent, but what I do think is that excellence uh, doesn't necessarily seem to me to be the thing to which um, everything should aspire, and that there are many different forms of uh, excellence. But anyway, um, when I went to that, and, and I just happened to be in a session which was full of, um, I guess, the great and the good, And one of the questions that Brian McMaster was that he went around the room and asked how it was that people had got involved in theatre or in the arts in the first place, you know, uh, whether they were running the National Theatre or they were running the National Gallery. And uh, every single person had got involved by doing it was through participating often when they were at school. Yeah, yeah. That has sort of stayed with me and made me, you know, realise how truly appalling it is what is happening to arts education within schools and about the fact that as drama teachers are laid off because, um, you know, drama is not seen as having a place within the curriculum, that everything that goes with that, you know, such as the school play is also Mm. lost. And
0: it's amazing how many people we've spoken to on this podcast who have talked about a, a drama teacher or a moment at school that's actually been the the point at which they started investigating maybe doing this for the rest of their lives and we're losing that just generation of children that aren't going to get that same
1: kind of opportunity
2: yeah no I entirely agree and uh and and I think it is absolutely tragic
1: Can we talk a little bit about the life of a critic? Because one of the fun parts of making this podcast has been trying to imagine ourselves into the various roles that our guests perform in in order to think up our questions. And the less familiar, the better, as it turns out, as that's where we encounter the most surprises. So I put on my theatre critic costume and I sat in the imaginary stalls and I thought, how many shows do I have to sit through this week? In the pre-COVID era, how many shows on average did you see a week?
2: Uh, I would say during that time, um, probably slightly less than perhaps I would have done in the past. But I would stay still five times a week, I would go to the theatre. Are
0: you suffering from withdrawal at the moment? Clearly, it's a huge part of your, your life.
2: The answer to that, very bluntly, is no. Uh, right. and, and, and initially, I felt really, really worried about this. And then when I thought about it, uh, I thought there are two things. Is One, of course, it has allowed me to do all sorts of other things, such as read more, certainly watch television a great deal more. But I think the main reason that I'm not missing it is because of the fact that it is, it's not going on. You know, there's no fear of missing out, is there? Nobody very much can go to the theatre. And I would also say just at the moment, though there are a few things that it's possible to go to, and I have uh, been going to some things, I'm being very careful because, in fact, just before lockdown, um, I moved in with my 93-year-old dad, and so I'm shielding him.
1: So when you're working in more normal times, what was your routine like? Was it dinner beforehand, then the show, then home to write the review? How does it work?
2: It would really depend, and it depends who you're writing for. But most of my career, you head off to the theatre. But I think one of the things that people sort of often think about theatre critics is that that is all we do. But in most, for most of my career, I've, I've worked all day, Uh, writing articles or in the early days when I was at pretty limits, you know, doing listings uh, Mm. before you then go to the theatre and then uh, either possibly in the past have to do an overnight review that um, you might have to write incredibly quickly I would say the shortest period of time that, I, from the moment when the curtain came down to when I had to file, was fourteen minutes. <laughs> wow!
0: Because I because that's why press nights traditionally start at seven o'clock rather than seven thirty, isn't it?
2: Yeah. But frequently, you know, these kind of press nights are much rarer now, I would say, because one of the things that has shifted, particularly in the West End, that critics often now get invited to a number of performances in what is run up to the opening night. And that allows them the opportunity to see something and then uh, have time to actually process it and uh, digest it and uh, write in a more measured way. So I would then either write immediately on the night or more recently, first thing in the morning.
1: And presumably, you're, in part, you're writing... Review as you watch, are you, or does it sometimes take more time to percolate?
2: I think it sometimes takes much more time to percolate. You, You know, the reviews I really love writing most, the reviews I really like writing most, and they never would occur if you were writing immediately after the curtain has come down because. Quite honestly, when you're writing like that, the kind of stress of the moment and the adrenaline, uh, you know, often makes you, you're worried about delivering your 500 words within the next three quarters of an hour, I think to some degree more than you Are worrying about what it is that you're really saying. Those are the reviews that are often most cursory. I I think if you watch anyone who does them, even those people who are absolutely fantastic at doing those overnight reviews, and I wouldn't necessarily count myself amongst those, is that um, you know they often concentrate quite a lot on the plot and and feel as though you know they are are filling up the words rather than um, taking a kind of considered. Response. But the reviews I really like writing most, and as I say, there's always the, the next morning, are when you sit in front of, of the laptop and the blank uh, page and sort of discover that you think something else entirely about what you saw the night before than you thought that you thought and perhaps actually what you sort of actually said you know maybe on the tube on the way home with the person who might have accompanied you.
0: Yeah it's interesting as creative team members I think we have a very similar experience during the preview process in that the first preview is always a sort of very tense and sort of exciting and unknown moment when we we sit with the audience and watch the show for the first time and straight after previews we tend to sit and have notes with the, the director and designers and the rest of the creative team and I think At that point, we're sort of dealing with gut reactions to what has just happened. And it's probably only the next day when we've actually had a bit of time to sleep on it and consider it, that we sort of start to feel what what the show is and what the notes need to be and, and how we want to move the show forward. So I think it's probably a very similar sort of experience.
2: Yeah, I think that it is. I mean, of course, that's not always the case. You know, there are absolute moments when you come out of something and you feel very clear. And you were saying, is the review writing itself join the show? Um... For me, I would say probably not very much. I try and, to some degree, I mean, to, I suppose to trick myself, I sort of try and approach it as though I am never going to have to write anything about it at all. Um, right. I, I do sometimes, you know, um, scribble down some stuff in a notebook having the notebook feels like a talisman it feels like a Hmm. bit of a safety knot but I would also say that frequently I never look at the notes I've made at all and sometimes I will have made you know quite a lot of notes and sometimes after the first couple of things I've written down I stop writing anything at all. Actually, it's really odd. I mean, this uh, I don't mean this in an egotistical way. I've certainly had it said to me by people, particularly in sort of situations like at the Edinburgh Fringe, where venues are very small, where Mm. your visibility as a critic, and I'm probably quite well known, certainly on the Edinburgh Fringe, that companies know that you're in. And that's actually, they are watching you. I've had several occasions where, um, you know, people said to me afterwards, oh, we saw you after the first sort of 10 minutes that you put down your notebook and stopped writing. And we thought that meant that you hated it and that you weren't going to write a review. And then you wrote a really glowing notice.
0: I was going to ask if you feel sort of self-conscious sitting next to an audience member and I guess in front of the um, performance with your notepad. Are you sort of aware that you're sort of on show in a way?
2: Well, I think you are on show. That's why it's absolutely necessary that uh, critics behave well and you know staying awake and being engaged.
1: You don't. Um, you don't lie across five seats in the front row, there.
2: <laughs> no. What I would also say about that is that you know I think there's no point in being kind of too self-conscious about it. You know, I think it is hard as a critic. I think you have to really guard against getting too clumped up like a little raisin. We all know the incredible effort and work and skill uh, and creative imagination that goes into putting on a show. And yet so often what it feels that it comes down to is that uh, one night at seven o'clock in the evening when a group of not very representative people come in and pass judgment on it and I think as a group of people um, critics are extremely well serviced by the kind of PR industry and uh, quite a lot of stroking goes on of critics and and their egos and I think it is very very easy for some people to start seeing themselves as being as important as the work and we're not we absolutely are not it is the work that is really really important and we are just in the lucky and privileged position to be able to give our response to what it is that we have seen
0: Mm. So can we can we talk a bit about the role of a critic then? So why why are critics important? Do you think?
2: I think that critics are uh, important in many ways. Um, I mean, I personally do not see that it's my job to sell tickets, although clearly. That is how PR and marketing would see what we do as as, as being something that, you know, uh, in, will encourage people to buy a ticket. So the point I would make about that is that our opinion only really kind of counts if the people who are reading what we've written, whether in fact actually those are people who work in the theatre or whether they are the theatre going public, only has any meaning whatsoever if um if what we do is uh and how we write and the shows we write about are regularly read by those people because then you can know where a critic is coming from um there are certainly many many people who when I say I don't like something would uh, immediately go online or get on the phone and book themselves a ticket because they know that they really enjoy it. They probably will. And those <laughs> are critics in exactly the right way. So I don't see it as being my uh, job to sell tickets. What I do see it as being my job, which is to try and give a sense of what it was like to be in the theatre on that night And see that show.
0: And do you think that you have a role in the dialogue between the people making the show and people watching the show?
2: Sometimes we can be. uh, Sometimes we can be uh, a bridge for that, a bridge between those two things. You know, what makes me different from somebody else who is a keen theatre-goer is, one, I have a platform. Secondly, I am paid for what I do. And thirdly, I do go five nights a week, and I've been doing that for decades. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And while I, you know, uh, personally rather hate those reviews that sort of begin when I saw John Gilgo play Hamlet in, you know, whenever it was... There is, of course, something that goes on in your head all the time, which is um, not that you're holding things and weighing them up against each other. But what you are noticing is uh, trends and changes mm. and kind of movements, and uh, and I think that is a interesting that puts the critic in a really interesting position.
1: Can I share, uh, I found an interesting analogy in a piece by James Hadrell, who is uh, the artistic director of the Greenwich Theatre, yeah. and he, uh, he, in this piece, he suggests that modern art criticism falls into two camps. It's rather like a political system where we, we either elect individuals to lead us based on their considered opinion, as you've described, or, or we can sample the view of the majority, So it's like using a referendum to decide the way forward. So I guess the sort of social media uh, aspect of theatre criticism represents the referendum model. Shall I see this show? I ask the wider public and let that guide you. Uh, And the alternative is the elected leader model, where we're being guided by a handful of reviewers uh, or reviews by critics who are well-versed in the theatrical canon, who, as you say, track current changes in the industry. Uh, And I suppose whose writing builds a clear picture of their personal taste um and by declaring their taste consistently it's a bit like they're publishing a manifesto and it allows readers to find and follow the things that they that they might be interested in
2: I, I think there is a substantial difference between running a political campaign uh, in which there is uh, misinformation and, and lies and nobody is kind of held to account and in fact um, asking uh, uh, a number uh, of people whose views that you trust, Or that you think of as friends, whether in fact they're your next door neighbor and you gossip with them over the garden fence because you know he or she is a very keen theatre goer and has gone to see a lot of stuff, or whether that might be on Twitter. I think it's a mixture of things. I don't think critics are really any different from that. It's because in the same way that you might know what the taste is of your uh, next door neighbor, and you are likely to be following particular people on Twitter for the same sort of reason. I think it's exactly the same with critics. I mean, you know, some uh, people, I'm thinking of somebody like Charlie Spencer, the critic on the Daily Telegraph. Now, this would not be somebody who I would regularly agree with but by reading his reviews on a regular basis not only were you very clear about what Charlie uh, thought about particular playwrights or particular theatrical modes of operation. But you would also know um, an awful lot about his life, his marriage, his alcoholism. And I think in a way that that over a period of time is is what a theatre critic does. Um, Reviews are often as revealing of us as they are of the show about which we're writing.
1: So there's a the build-up of trust between writer and audience?
2: I think there is a build-up of trust between writer and audience. And I think one of the things that's actually really important is uh, um, the difference I said was uh, earlier that between me and other people was the amount I go to the theatre, the fact I get paid for it, and the fact I have a platform. Platform are really important. But of course, the thing that has changed in terms of platform over the last 15 years is about the fact that it is now possible for anybody to have a platform because they can set up their own blog.
1: Or their own podcast.
2: Yeah, or their own podcast, absolutely. And and I think that's a great thing because I think it works in exactly the same way. There will be some people who've listened to your podcast and who will go, oh, I'm never going to listen to that again because it's really boring. And why did they have that Lynn Gardner on it? Uh, but there were other people who will have listened to more than one and will go, "Oh, yeah, they are really, really interesting podcast hosts, and um they talk about things that I'm interested in or I didn't know I was interested in about theater
1: mm. yeah that's what we hope before we move on from the the, the I suppose it's the subject of the the criticism that the critic as a um uh, if not a celebrity, then certainly a personality. Uh, the, the sort of power that someone like... I suppose I'm thinking of someone like Ben Brantley at the New York Times. Yeah. The, the power that someone like that is has is remarkable. and It's almost sort of life or death over, 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 over shows, in fact. Is that degree of influence in the hands of an individual problematic, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think that it is. And I don't think that we have ever had a situation in this country where somebody uh, wielded the kind of power... Uh, in fact, you see, I don't think Ben Brantley uh, uh, wields the kind of power that Frank Rich, who, of course, was known as the Butcher of Broadway, uh, who was Not. once the New York Times critic. And and I think he absolutely had the power. You know, he could close the show sort of practically overnight. And I don't think that there is anybody in this country who has uh, that kind of power. And I I guess that there are probably... People who uh, the industry would view their views as being more valid than other people, depending on what it was, whether it was a musical or whether it was a piece of post-dramatic theatre, whether it was a fringe show or whether it was something at the National Theatre. The thing I think that is pernicious is the star rating system. Uh, yes. yeah, and the reason I mean, you know, I'm not saying anything the slightest bit controversial here. I have yet to meet a critic who, um, you know, says that, that they really, really think the star rating system is absolutely brilliant. And my personal appeal, feeling about it, something that I've kind of talked about before, is that I think you know, star ratings are absolutely brilliant if you're thinking about buying a new fridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great application when it comes to white goods. They are completely useless when they come to art. So, for example, you know, I might give three stars to something which is a first show by a young company at a small fringe venue. And what I am really saying, if you actually took the trouble to read the review, is that this is really exciting, fledgling work, Yeah. But often people sort of don't bother to read the review if it's three stars. Uh, But similarly, you know, if something that's on at the National or the RSC gets three stars, uh, people would generally see, oh, it was probably a bit of a disappointment. So I I think it's such a blunt instrument. I think it's not helpful. Mm -hmm. And the thing I really also think is that I think that the industry itself colludes in it. They say when they get one or two stars, oh, the reviewer didn't understand it. And when they get four or five stars, they plaster it up all outside. It's everywhere. everywhere. Uh, And actually, I think that if, uh, you know, if they just turn around and said, well, if I believe, you know, generally I read this reviewer and I kind of uh go along with what they say why is it I believe them when they give me four stars but not when they give me two stars but more than anything I think it is about the theatre industry itself you know buying into the idea that you can uh measure the value of theatre through a star rating system and I just do not subscribe.
0: No, I definitely agree with you. But do you think that's actually across society as a whole, you talk about stars for white goods, but it's the same for films. It's the same. We sort of, restaurants, whatever, people seem to be seeking other people's approval in decision-making by reading, you know, all the reviews available online all the time and people don't really read them. They just sort of cut to it and go, okay, that's had four stars. I'll probably go and see that. I'm safe to invest my money in that night out of the restaurant or that film. Yeah. And it's a shame, I think, it takes away from thinking about whether you'd be, whether you're reading about it, whether you're going to be interested and engaged in it.
2: I I think those things are really interesting. Where where I'm actually, I'm always really interested about how it works. And and in some ways, I think it's it's quite a good idea, is, for example, in Edinburgh, where... uh, you know, particularly kind of broadsheet newspapers have quite a lot of clout, but they often are reviewing shows which the rest of the year they would not review because they primarily would review, uh, uh, you know, uh, things which are at the National Theatre or the University or in the West End or at a particular level of boutique theatre. Uh, so they're suddenly reviewing things, and you also have an audience there you know, particularly amongst kind of perhaps a, an older audience who can afford the hotels in Edinburgh during festival time and uh, can also afford to buy tickets for three or four shows a day and who just go for a few days and they don't really know what to see because of course, you know, there are thousands of things off. It's incredibly confusing. I mean, I find it very confusing. Yeah. Um, as to what it is I should go and see. And so they look for them. They go, oh, there's four stars in The Guardian or there's four stars in The um, Times for this. And then um, they find themselves watching a really very experimental piece by a woman who is licking her vagina. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to think this is absolutely fascinating. And in many ways, of course, it's a really great thing. You know, it, it, uh, it means that, people go and see something that is outside their comfort zone and which they wouldn't normally go and see.
0: So maybe that's what the star ratings about at Edinburgh it's about encouraging people to go and see different things maybe that's the experience. So I in mean, getting people in to see things is
2: yeah. so hard at. Edinburgh. Absolutely. I want to ask you two a question as lighting designers do you feel that um, uh, critics fail to really give lighting designers their view? And do you think critics understand lighting for the theatre?
0: I think it's great if you're aware to notice it. You have a sense of whether the lighting is appropriate for the play and is enhancing it in some way. But I don't think necessarily you should be having a tick-box list of, right, I need to write about the lighting, I need to write about the costumes, I need to write about the shoes. It's more about how do all these elements fit together to tell the story which I'm watching.
1: And it shouldn't really be taken out of the context in which this exists. It's part of a stage composition, isn't it? And I think if you deconstruct that stage composition, then you can start looking at each individual part of it. One would hope that uh, a discerning eye would notice that this location has been created in part by lighting, if, if, you know, if, if your job actually is to critique the piece. But as an audience member who's hopefully just sitting and watching, and enjoying the piece and uh, being taken on a journey, then really they shouldn't be thinking, oh, this uh, this lighting's great. Because I mean, I often feel like as a, as a lighting designer, I go and see a show, I'm no longer able to just sit and watch it as a punter because I, I immediately look up into the grid.
2: In a way, I would turn around and say that I think it's the same for me as a critic. I love paying to go to the theatre. And I notice I definitely watch it in a different way. And actually, I find I'm way more forgiving. I also don't wonder whether there is something about the fact that once you've shelled out the often not inconsiderable amount of money to go in the first place, that you've kind of made an investment, uh, you know, in in it in some ways, uh, at least a financial investment that then makes you kind of invest in it in other ways. Uh,
0: yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I agree, I think there's definitely an element to that that you sort of invested in going to have yeah. an evening out and with certain expectations and you sort of want the event to, to live up to it I mean,
2: having said that, of course, I'm always really struck by the number of people who invest in a night out uh, as an opportunity to immediately go to sleep within 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, but is the problem them or the show?
2: I think it may be a mixture of both, you know
1: it may well be in some productions,
0: it probably is. I'm curious, as a lighting designer, to ask you, do you think lighting's changed over the time you've been a critic? Do you think it has a bigger role, a different role? Um, there's a huge amount more technology which you may or may not be aware of, but do you? Do you see your perception of lighting on stage has changed?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that it has. I think the, uh, and I think there's something rather similar with sound design as well. I think the role that both of those things play within productions is much bigger. And I think it's about the fact that that it uh, feels that often on stage, I mean, not always, but that people are making something which is perhaps closer to sort of total theatre. They are making something in a more collaborative way. And I think that that is a good thing. I suspect I that in the past, and I think it's probably still the case because of the way that people in this country become directors which is mostly they become directors by doing it that most of them Mm -hmm. sort of start of their careers don't really know anything about lighting at all and in some cases think that it is maybe something that just happens sort of towards the end of the production and I don't know whether this is true but my impression is is that lighting designers are involved much, much earlier in the process than they probably were like 30 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, we tend to get involved at the sort of the white card model stage. So yeah. when the director and designer have got have, are sort of having their first ideas, and there's probably some sense of what the physical space of the of production might be, and maybe an idea of whether it's going to be you know, naturalistic or expressionistic. So is it going to be contemporary or you've got an idea of what the shape of the show might be but then i think we get brought in quite early on to talk about how lighting can can add to the whole production and then we're sort of involved in conversations from then onwards
2: i think that also you know you talk about that idea of maybe critics being personalities in some ways I think it's also the case actually with with lighting designers and with sound designers, um, that sense of people being less in the background and uh, more about the fact that in the same way that, um, you know, what makes a great playwright is the distinctiveness they may write many different plays but often there is something distinctive about their voice as a playwright and that's the same uh is true of a director that i think that actually um you know i feel that is more and more the case with lighting designers and with sound designers as well
1: i was very intrigued because i think you've written about being able to recognise the personality of a lighting designer, be able to say, "Oh, that's a that's a poorly constable," or, yeah. or "That's a or that's a Bruno poet." Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think I guess that's something we ourselves maybe we're not so aware of ourselves. What you know, what what our personality looks like on stage. That's a, that was a really intriguing, um, yeah. an intriguing idea. Mm-hmm. Given that you see so much theatre, how do you how do you stay fresh and enthused if you spend so many nights? sitting in the stalls?
2: Um, Well, I think that you do, um, and I think that you have to, and I think the moment that you cease to, that is the moment to give up the pen and the notebook. I I would put it this way, okay, which is the truth is that an awful lot of theatre is so-so. It is not really fantastic, and uh, it is not terrible. A lot of it is Mm. sort of somewhere in the middle. But I think Mm. the point really about doing the job is that I think it's not about that moment of sitting in the stalls and kind of going, gosh, I feel really quite tired because that can happen to anybody. I think it is more about the fact that if you don't wake up in the morning and kind of go, I'm going to see X tonight or Y tonight and feel kind of excited about it, then, then I think you probably are jaded. I think it's a bit like I think that for me going to the theatre is that even if I've had a really bad run of things and seen a lot of stuff that I haven't really enjoyed, there is always part of me that kind of goes, oh, tonight might be the night that I right. do something. Of course, as a um, uh, as a critic, you have particular. Tastes. Like, you know, personally, I would always look forward to going to see a Jacobean revenge tragedy much more than I would look forward to going to see a restoration comedy, let's say. I'm probably more interested in the plays of Carol Churchill naturally than I am in the plays of David Hare. But in all those examples, you know, you go and see a really fantastic production of a Restoration comedy or a David Hare play, and you suddenly go, "Oh, this is this is amazing!" You know, I put my hand on my heart and say it's absolutely true. Uh, there are occasions where I have sat down in a theatre with a sort of fairly kind of heavy heart, thinking this might not be going to be for me. You know, I and then you come out and go. I never realized that a Boney M musical could be so fantastic.
0: We often get sent scripts before we you know, when we're asked if we're interested in doing a show. and I always find it incredibly hard to know because I don't I could read the words, but I have no idea what the team's going to be like, what we're going to make out of those words, and what the production's going to end up like. So you can't really predict what's going to happen um, until you've sort of gone through the whole
2: process. I'm quite relieved that you say that because you see, for example, I would say I am absolutely rubbish at reading plays. I might be okay at um kind of reading uh, a production and its meanings and you know and and what people are trying to do but uh on the page i'm I'm really not very good at it at all. you know um when I was kind of younger at various points you know people said oh you should you know you should try and read for various theaters, which is something that you know some critics at some points in their careers do do and I just absolutely knew that I would not be any good at it.
1: I rely very heavily on what I see in the rehearsal room and and maybe make a point of trying to go to the first read-through of a play if I'm available. Uh, very early in my career I used to make a point of reading the script and maybe even acting it out in the kitchen and playing all the parts because I thought it was somehow useful but I, I really struggled with it and then I'd go and just see the actors sitting around the table in the rehearsal room reading it for the first time and the whole thing would come to life in comparison to my kitchen version at least (laughs) Uh, and I I skim through the play very quickly now because I'm looking for crucial information and I need to know the story of course but if I hear the actors do it it makes so much more sense
2: yeah so
1: how do you choose what to see
2: it depends when I worked at the Guardian, the way that it used to work was that um, Michael Billington would do a list of what was uh, going to be on that week, and then he would choose what it was that he wanted to go and see, and then the rest of it would be uh, left over for me to do. But I think one of the things that I sort of realised maybe very early on, and I was sort of really uh, lucky at the time when I joined The Guardian that theatre was changing. So what what I started to realise was that Michael would have done his list, but there were maybe many other things that actually hadn't even made his list. What I started to do was to um, add things to the list and say, I'm going to see this and I'm going to see that. Yeah.
0: Because you do a phenomenal amount of travel, or you did a phenomenal amount of tra- travel, and I think you're a very passionate a voice for regional theatre and small theatre and studio theatres all the way across the UK. And I think a lot of those things may well have been missed if it wasn't for you finding seeking them out.
2: Um, yeah, and I, I, I think, again, when I was at The Guardian, one of the things I was really aware of, and I, I in particular, actually, it was an occasion I turned up to see something in at the Octagon in Bolton, and I can't remember, but I think they had not seen a theatre critic from a national newspaper for, I think it was eight years. Therefore, I you know, became aware, and, and, and I think you need to remember that this was a period in the sort of mid-1990s There had been, you know, in the 1980s, regional theatre had been kind of decimated to a large degree. So I think what national newspapers had sort of decided was that it wasn't really of much interest and so they shouldn't kind of cover it anymore. But actually, you know, over that period, as I persevered and I went out to see more and more stuff, I realised actually that there were really, you know, there were great things happening in regional theatres and regional theatres were doing something very different to what theatre in London was doing and of course one of the substantial things that brought about change was in 1997 when the Labour government was uh, elected more money started going into theatre including to regional theatre and of course the theatre review which I think in you know 2001 injected a substantial uh, sum some millions of pounds into theatre, much of which found its way into regional theatre. And it was really interesting. I could absolutely see, because the money was, was announced and it was allocated, you know, how it's going to be allocated. But actually, I think it took about 18 months uh, for the money to actually sort of start to find its way through, maybe even two years onto the stages but it's a real example of the difference that money makes because I noticed immediately a huge sea change in confidence in regional theatre in uh, actually what people were trying to do and uh, what they thought that they could do.
0: Do you think that sort of funding allows theatres to be more experimental to take more risks to, to challenge their audiences more?
2: Yeah, I think, of course, it does. You know, there is a tyranny of uh, of the box office. I mean, of course, that we have discovered in the last six months with the theatre closure that what happens to a theatre when the tap at the box office is, is closed off. I think it was William Rees-Nogg, you know, uh, who was chair of the Arts Council under Thatcher, and, and he said that... Uh, Um, you know the problem with subsidy was that it weakened the sinews of self-help but I think we have absolutely seen where self-help i.e theatres buying into the idea that uh, they need need more income streams uh, and that they have to earn more money themselves where that has got us in a pandemic and the thing that's really is that the people who have been able to carry on operating in exactly the way that they were operating before and serve those communities who they have been serving all along are those companies like oily cart who uh, work with audiences who are autistic or have severe needs they can only do their work because they are fully subsidised. Because, of course, they never make a lot of money at the uh, at the box office.
0: You can see um, across Europe, there's many theatres are still making work because, again, they rely they rely less on the box office to be the main source of their funds.
2: That itself, of course, is quite interesting as well because, of course, the danger is is that that artists and audiences can get further and further away. I remember the um, person, former artistic director of Soho, and he always used to say, um, you know, about theatre, what is, uh, um, you know, theatre without an audience is just masturbation. You know, that argument does hold as much as the argument, um, you know, the other way, which is that not being reliant on the box office allows for a creative freedom.
0: Producers know certain shows are likely to get more audience than others. But on the other hand, if you, give, if you risk a show that may or may not be successful, you might have an amazing success and an amazing audience. So it's, it's not about guaranteeing seat tickets. about, I think, it's the freedom to challenge and take risks, which may, of course, get you an amazing audience.
2: But I think that's absolutely true in Europe compared with here as, as well. You know, I think to a large degree here, creatives and directors are kind of only as good as their last show. Whereas often yeah. in Europe and with theatres in Europe, somebody is um, commissioned to write or direct maybe uh, three, four or five shows. And I think it's on an understanding that, in fact, you know, it could be that three of them are sort of so-so, one of them is quite good, but one of them might be astonishing, groundbreaking and changing and extraordinary. And I think that we have um, neither the money nor the faith in our artists in this country to do that.
1: No, that's right. The sense that there's a continuation of an interrogation of an idea from show to show, that one show doesn't necessarily exist in isolation, that there is a theme or a, an agenda that carries on, that, that, that there's plenty more room for experimentation and, and um there's lots more to discover. Uh, so you carry that forward into the next show. I'm just thinking of my work with someone like Katie Mitchell, for example, that those those um, across the shows, we are continuing to investigate similar territory and similar ideas, but every time we discover something new
2: yeah of course uh absolutely and of, of course that I think that's really really exciting for um well, it's exciting for critics like me, but I think it's exciting for audiences to see that. I think that theater, particularly in this country, really underestimates how much audiences are interested in process uh, and and the opportunity to actually see that, I think, um, you know, uh, and to see how that process is being applied over a number of shows. We don't think it's odd when we read uh, a novel that, you know, that a writer, uh, you know, goes back to the same set of concerns and writes in a very distinctive style over, you know, a number of novels. Uh, And yet somehow it seems to me in theatre we are really enthralled to the idea of the news. So, you know, that idea of, oh, we've seen Katie Mitchell do this before. So, yeah. uh, you know, why do we want to see her doing it again? Uh, yeah. I,
1: uh, I always think of the analogy of of painters as well. If you're a painter, can paint the same haystack like a hundred times <laughs> or, you know, have an entire period that's blue. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's okay. So yeah, I, I I totally agree. Yeah, we we should probably just acknowledge the the current situation that the industry faces because it sometimes feels now that like the industry will never fully recover because we've lost so much talent and expertise already. I think it's fair to say that we're in dire straits. Do you feel that the arts are fighting hard enough to make our cause heard?
2: Well, of course, I have written about this. uh, And I think it's kind of quite interesting, uh, you know, uh, in something um, which is extraordinary, like a pandemic, as a commentator. And I suppose, just as an aside, I would say, is that I think that being a critic, I feel, is only part of what I do. And in fact, actually, mm. I often wouldn't describe myself as a theatre critic. So, so maybe I'm here under false pretenses on this. <laughs> uh, when you invited me on, um, at, you know, at, at my most pretentious, and this really is kind of, you know, pretentious, I would say that I have been lucky enough and privileged enough to be in a position where I've been able to kind of think out loud about theatre. For a very long time and i've had the platforms that have allowed me to actually do that so um i don't think that what i do is 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 just go and see shows and write about them um and i have written that i think that you know in the early days particularly of the pandemic it didn't feel to me that it was the moment to wag one's finger at theatre. I think lots of people, when theatre shut down uh, in March, really thought, oh, in a few weeks' time we will be back. And they were doing different business plans, you know, in order to kind of accommodate whether being back was going to be in June or July or maybe August. The idea that we are now in a situation where uh, it is quite likely that many buildings will not reopen uh, until uh, well into next year. And that there is uh, such a hemorrhaging of people from the profession, freelancers, the 70% of the workforce who, um, you know, have often fallen through the cracks of government support schools. uh, Is that I think we do need to interrogate about where we are and what we are trying to do. And that is not for a moment casting aspersion on the people who have fought so hard to get the 1.57 billion out of the government. Money, which has been announced, but at this point in time is not yet allocated, even though many weeks have gone by since the announcement. Because I think people worked frantically hard and we should be grateful that that they put the effort in. Um, Neither do I think that it's wrong that people like Andrew Lloyd Webber are absolutely working very hard and trying to persuade the government that there are ways in which theatre might be able to open safely. Yes. Danger, I think, is that in the same way that Theatre really has bought in over the last 15 years to this idea that they are businesses uh, and they are businesses uh, that need to have several income streams and have to um, uh, sell lots of tickets at the box office and then sell lots of things to people in the gift shop and then sell lots of chocolate brownies. Seems to me to not have proved to have been the greatest way forward. I think what that does is that you know it, it puts us in a position where uh, we are enthralled uh, to government ideas, particularly Tory government ideas that you know that we should be able to get money from business or we should be able to get money from philanthropy. Actually, I think that theatre does and should have an oppositional role. And I think that's difficult to have when you're going with your begging bowl to government and saying, we will not survive unless you give us help. Particularly when the government just turns around and goes, hey, you lot, you're not viable.
0: No, exactly. I was involved in a a sort of online meeting today, and um, someone was saying that the government, that they'd heard, I mean, who knows what everyone really, people really say, but they'd heard the government just assuming we could go off and get another job doing something else for a couple of years and then just come back to theatre as and when it's ready, are, are sort of unskilled and un, unneeded and not really specialists, so it didn't really matter.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the attitude. And I think that it is really, really tragic that so much of the 1.57 billion that, you know, uh, has been wrested out of the government's sweaty little palm uh, will go into effectively mothballing, Theaters that will probably never reopen and paying redundancy. I don't, for a moment, think that people who work in theatre shouldn't get their redundancy. Of course, I do, but I actually, you know, uh, think is that the best use of the money, and what is it that um, theatre can contribute, you know, to the nation moving forward in what are really dark times and the country, you know, where there is a, a lot of grief. A lot of resentment uh, and a lot of people who feel abandoned uh, to whom theatre can give in many different ways a home.
0: Yes, I see a lot of this discussion and despondency through organisations that I'm part of, um, one of which is StageSite, um, the Association of Lighting Designers, and an APTL, which is the Alliance of Associations of Professionals in Theatre and Live Events, and Freelancers Make Theatre Work as well. Are you aware how much freelancers are trying to take things into their own hands and fight for themselves?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely... Uh, of different organisations, of the freelance task force. And also, of course, actually, who has helped freelancers most? It has been other freelancers, companies who applied via the Arts Council to get funding in order to um, give work to other freelancers. It has been individual artists who have recognised their own privileged position and clout who have done fundraising in order who distribute um, um, no-questions-asked one-off grants to uh, people who are in dire need. It seems to me sometimes that it doesn't feel necessarily that some buildings um, and some buildings have behaved um, and companies have behaved extremely well in terms of how they treated freelancers. Uh, And of course, um, there have been others who have behaved appallingly. And I sort of think that you know maybe now is not the moment to do that calling out, but um, goodness, it will come. People's memories are very long.
0: Yeah, there's. Um, I mean, there's campaigns for producers to cut stuff rather than staff. But do you think theatre will be diminished if, when we come back, production budgets are severely cut?
2: I think that it will be. I think that there is um, something about scale that is important. You know... If, in fact, um, you turn around and say, well, we won't do this piece of work because it requires, you know, a cast of 12 or 16 and a supporting cast of seagulls, I think that narrows what it is that writers and makers aspire to, and I think that that is a problem. As it is, it seems to me that particular kinds of work have always or for a long time have been at a disadvantage work that doesn't present in the first case with a script that somebody can read somebody who knows how to read plays better than we do uh you know can and <laughs> kind of go yeah this this seems great you know there is a real difference um with people who make devised work that often turns out to be as exciting or more exciting than the scripted play and yet Requires probably quite a lot of people to get in a room together for two weeks, and for a theatre to pay for that. At the end of that two weeks, it may be that there isn't something. Yeah. So uh, therefore, theatres are much less keen to actually take the risk on that. The idea that we might end up with endless touring productions of Educated Rita is concerning.
0: It feels like that, that is a potential danger, and of course, the other thing about Um, the idea of cutting stuff is that stuff is actually all made by people so if you're reducing you might reduce your set budget but actually there's an extraordinary infrastructure of set builders props makers costume makers makeup people special effects people there's in many many businesses sort of rely on theatre to um, to demand exciting production values and high production values and of course cutting that is in danger of taking away these people who have amazing skills from our industry forever.
1: Uh, I've been working mostly in opera over the last four or five years, and certainly the opera houses where I've had contracts in the next two or three years have, most of them, 80% of them, I'd say, have been in touch to say that they are rethinking their programming. And certainly the more experimental work that I've been involved with, the new writing has been postponed. And I can only assume that that's to make room for more popular work that they know will sell
2: yeah I think that's really really worrying um, if that's the
1: case yeah A lot of people have on this podcast have expressed a desire to work towards a more inclusive sustainable industry. Uh, I suppose the idea and it this feels like it was an idea that that had some weight back in june july but it was the pause in inverted commas was an opportunity to reset and improve the business as we return to work but now my personal feeling is it might just simply be a fight for survival and the notions of an opportunity to rethink will be swept aside in the scramble just to get by is is that your feeling now or are you more optimistic?
2: Uh, I wish I could be more optimistic um, because I think by nature I am quite an optimistic person. But, I, yeah, I am really, really concerned. I mean, that fight for survival has already been lost by lots of people, uh, primarily kind of uh, freelancers. I've um, talked to uh, lots and lots of freelancers over the last few months. I have never in a very long career of uh, where I've interviewed probably thousands of people, have I ever had so many distressing conversations um, with people who absolutely have been in tears and don't know where to turn uh, in terms of trying to access any uh, financial support to see them through. I've even heard of people who, you know, for various reasons, have been um, turned down for universal credit because they've got their tax money ready in order to um, pay their tax bill. Uh, So they've been prudent in every way, you know, unlike those of us who are always scrabbling around for it. And yet then they are being kind of, um, you know, sort of penalized for it. So I think the situation is um, is really, really dire. And I think some things have changed. I mean, you know, there is a great irony that it's taken a pandemic. For, for example, uh, many um, freelancers uh, who in the past have sent endless uh, emails to producers and artistic directors and never actually received an answer to suddenly discover that, in fact, that it is possible to have uh, be on a Zoom call with a hundred other freelancers with the artistic director uh, of, of a theatre in that region. Somebody was telling me, the producer at Ben Anderson in Good Company, that uh, this was, you know, a few months ago in the pandemic, that they managed to get every Midlands artistic director on a Zoom call, indeed with, you know, hundreds of, uh, of freelancers. And, you know, that probably would never have taken place but for the pandemic. So I would say that I think that there have been some shifts. I think the spirit is willing, but I think the flesh is sort of weak. Is that the right way? I think that that's the case, and I think the longer that it goes on, and the more precarious a situation that people, particularly larger institutions, find themselves in, the more difficult it will actually be. I think where there is an area for some degree of hope, and I think actually, oddly, we see this in a very small scale way that. Uh, Smaller organisations uh, and companies, because they are more nimble, you know, and uh, because they have smaller overheads, may well be in a better position to survive than some big arts organisations who, for whom any kind of change whatsoever is like turning an oil tanker around. It takes quite a lot of time. So I would like to believe that there will be change. I think there will be change because I think actually the change, uh, the pandemic itself is bringing about kind of cultural shifts. I think things like Black Lives Matter are speeding up change. So I think in some areas, those uh, things will happen. But I think in the end, it will all come down to money and there won't be any. I hope I'm way off beam on this.
0: Yeah, it's funny it? how we sort of go through waves of optimism and pessimism, really, about the whole thing. I think at the moment I'm on a bit of a downward spiral. I think it just, it just feels endless now. There's sort of moments when you see hope and then it sort of disappears. But anyway, um, enough of my um, inner dwellings, <laughs> James. It's probably time to do our quick fire round. <laughs>
1: I think that's right. Uh, Lynn, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with this segment of the show, uh, but we just like to end on a, a light-hearted um, quick question. You can respond with a single syllable or uh, elaborate further if you wish, but there's just a few short questions to end by. Uh, starting with you, Bruno. Horses or dogs? Dogs. Night owl or dawn chorus? Dawn chorus. Pen, pen or pencil? Uh Pen this might be connected what is your favorite tool
2: i mean i suppose pen is a tool isn't it uh yeah
1: because
2: i am not a woman for a hammer and nail i can tell you
0: stay and applaud or quick exit before the curtain call uh,
2: i am quite a quick exit i have to say um but i um i i do feel um i do feel bad about it and funny enough i feel yeah i i mean i certainly would uh, uh, would applaud but uh, I, because I think, it, gosh, it's just rude not to. And um, I actually think. Um you know, those people who have to go out there and do it night after night, uh, that they uh, deserve every clap that you get. But I am somebody who um, keeps an eye on the exits in theatre and I will have planned my... um and escape. Yes, <laughs> in order to do that. I have to say, I am somebody who does most things in a hurry. I walk at the speed of lightning uh, in any <laughs>
0: Which is a very useful talent to get out before the crush of the rest yeah. of the audience.
2: Yeah, that's what it's really you know, about. Like, the idea of being in the middle of a row fills me with horror. I was,
0: I was going to ask you about that. You're definitely an aisle seat on the, um, on the end. Yeah.
2: Well, that would be my preference. But having said that, I think that one of the things that is odd is that so often the sightlines for critics in aisle seats are really not very good. And now the days of, um, you know, the overnight review have really disappeared. It's just a convention, aisle seats. There's no real need for it.
0: It's definitely a better view from the centre. Yeah. Mm. That's where we sit. That's <laughs> where we tend to sit yeah. when we're making the jet And
2: I'll notice that sometimes, because I can tell you what, when I was regularly doing lots and lots of stuff in regional theatres, regional theatres always, you know, for very good reason, would put you in the middle of a row. But if you were then going to be rushing for a train or wanting to get out of the car park uh, to drive 200 miles back to London that night so I was there, you know, for my kids in the morning often at the interval I would keep an eye and see where there were spare seats and I would move nearer the end of the row and I cannot tell you the number of times in those circumstances uh, I would sit in that seat and I'd go nobody in the creative team has ever
1: sat
0: there. <laughs> <That, yeah. laughs> no, it's a good point. It's important that we do. And I think actually one of the great things about having a reasonable number of previews is the opportunity to go and see it from lots of different seats because normally it's so frantic in the tech when we're making the show. You tend to be kind of almost rooted to the spot. But after that is the time to go and have a proper look and see all the horrors of the masking and the wings and what
1: you can see in the background. <laughs> shabby pub theatre or West End
2: glitz? Oh, probably shabby uh Pub theatre because I'm quite a shabby person. I do recall this is many years ago when I was quite young. I turned up one night and I remember where it was. It was at the Theatre Royal Haymarket, uh, and I'd been at work all day. and I think I'd been and you know done some shopping, so I had my kind of you know Sainsbury's bags with me, and uh, a rather formidable PR she just looked at me and she said this is a West End opening, Lynn
0: (laughs) Um, Pudding or cheese?
2: Uh, Pudding and lots of it
1: (laughs) Very good (laughs) Um, Bruno's going to the bar, it's his round, what can he get you?
2: Oh, a uh, glass of red wine
1: Very good, I'll um, get them lined
0: up fantastic Lynn thank you so much for talking to us it's been lovely
2: listen thank you very much for having me I've really enjoyed it Uh, you're great hosts uh, so thank you very much
1: Thank you once again to Lynn for giving up her time to talk to us. As ever, if you have any questions, comments or even ideas for future episodes, you can contact us on Instagram or Twitter at Making Theatre FM or if you prefer, by email on Podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a glowing review. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.